Everybody and welcome to the March 3rd, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzzini. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Governor John Hickenlooper's recent appearance on Meet the Press. <laughs> During the interview, Hickenlooper was unsure of whether Attorney General Jeff Sessions would address Colorado's recreational marijuana industry. Patty Cahoon of Westward, uh, clearly Jeff Sessions has more things to do this week than to uh, bother Colorado or any other state with legalized recreational marijuana. But do you think it will eventually be on his to-do list? Well, let's, I would hope not. Let us hope, uh, let's hope Trump holds to the state's right issue. I would think a bigger enemy of the uh, Trump administration is Russia than Colorado, but it does look right now that they are focusing on us. Sessions wasn't deterred by whatever John Hickenlooper said on Meet the Press on Saturday, Sunday because he addressed a group of attorneys general later in the week and said the exact same thing, that he's going to be looking at what's going on in Colorado. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Governor Hickenlooper seemed to make the point uh, during the interview with Meet the Press that because the law is in our Constitution, that that might help one way or the other. What do you think? Um, unfortunately, it, it does not help in a federal statute uh, defeats a state constitution as a matter of, of law in the courts. But sometimes state resistance succeeds even in the long run as a practical matter. And that goes back all the way to, to state resistance uh, to the Sedition Act with the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions where they didn't win court cases, uh, but they did establish the principle of, of freedom of speech and the right to criticize the president. Jeff Sessions does not have a lot of extra political capital to spend these days, uh, especially on breaking one of Donald Trump's campaign promises. And I'd say good for Governor Hickenlooper for standing up not only for the marijuana provision in our state constitution, but for the overarching principle in Article 2, Section 3 of our Bill of Rights, which says the people of Colorado have the sole and exclusive right of governing themselves. Very few state constitutions have such, such strong language. Ours does, so good for our governor for being faithful to his constitutional oath. Penfield Tate joins us, attorney with QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. Public opinion is not tilted towards the Trump administration on this topic. Do you think other Republicans in Congress and in the Senate really want the Trump administration to be going after recreational marijuana out of all the different issues that are on their plate? You know, I don't think they do, but the problem they're faced with is not only the attorney general's um, antipathy towards uh, marijuana and drugs in general, whether it be recreational or medicinal, but in the address to Congress, the president talked about dealing with drugs. It, uh, it, to me, it almost felt like he was reviving the war on drugs again because he mentioned this several times. The, the interesting dynamic is going to be 
those Republicans from states that have approved either um, personal use of marijuana and or medicinal, how they respond to the administration, because many of them, if they hold to Republican principles, are going to say, our states have decided to do these things, you need to back down. And, and I agree with everybody else. It's not like Attorney General Sessions has a lot of political capital to work with these days to pursue this sort of agenda. Natasha Gardner, Articles Editor of 5280 Magazine. Um, Meet the Press was not just about marijuana with Governor Hickenlooper. He had talked about presidential, uh, or his lack of presidential aspirations. What did you think of Governor, Governor Hickenlooper's performance? Well, I think what's interesting with this, um, this interview is it was a series of interviews that he was doing when he was uh, in, in D.C. Um, for meetings. Um, his tone on the MSNBC interview, which was a few days earlier, was a little different, a little more forceful, talking about the conflict that would arise specifically related to marijuana. I think in general we're so used to, to the governor that we're, we're used to his quirk. It's interesting to see him on a national stage. There were a lot of maybes, a lot of uh, classic sort of Hickenlooper statements, um, and, and particularly on the marijuana issue. I think that that's, that's sometimes a good and a bad thing. And to pull sort of a Hickenlooper and show both sides here, I think that there are some people who say, well, that's great. As an individual, he has never really been in support. He's not in support yet. He's standing by what he believes. But there's still this sense of, well, you're the governor of Colorado. When would you get behind this? When would you support this part of the state constitution that has been beneficial to our economy, to a lot of individuals? So I, I seeing him on that national stage play that role that he plays, or, or, or playing out the, the same sort of the script that he plays out here was interesting to see. It was indeed uh, interesting to see, trying to see Chuck Todd trying to really pin him down on that, and the governor was having none, none of that. President Trump's address to Congress this week was met with conflicting responses from Colorado lawmakers. Republicans Cory Gardner and Scott Tipton praised Mr. Trump's stance on repairing the economy, job creation, and repealing the Affordable Care Act. Meanwhile, Democrats Diana DeGette, Ed Perlmutter, and Michael Bennett noted that President Trump has proposed harmful and unrealistic immigration policies and has given promises but no real plans. Patty, the speech certainly was the headline after Tuesday night. Uh, it quickly lost that status as we get into Thursday and Friday. What were your overall impressions? Well, I think we all so can almost agree that no matter who is the president, we want him or her to do well for the country. And in some ways, the speech, the start of it on Tuesday night, I'm like, wow, this is what he should have said when he's, he was inaugurated. If you really want to be the president for all the people, he struck um, a somewhat even-handed tone. I mean, it was a real surprise after the first 30 days, the first month of Trump in office. And then the headline, that headline might have lasted for about a minute, and then everything else starts coming out. We've got the fact that members of his administration seem incapable of, they either have no memory at all, like maybe there's something just wiping out their memory whenever they walk into the White House. They have no memory or they are just flat out lying as often as they can, especially when it comes to Russia. Uh, that must have been some party in Cleveland at the Russian, the Russian party for the Republican convention because everyone seemed to be there and have a lot of conversations that they don't remember. Could have been the vodka, but um, whatever good Trump did with that speech, which was certainly the best of the speeches he's given if you're trying to be the president for all the people, it was wiped out and now he's talking about witch hunts again. To be looking for, to be catching people in lies is not a witch hunt.
David, do you think the speech did much to rally congressional Republicans? We heard about that from various pundits that with Republicans in Congress and the Senate that may have been nervous about what, how the first 30 days were going, this may have made them, made them feel better. What do you think? Oh, ab absolutely. And, and not only Republicans, but I think uh, independents and, and really almost everybody across the board. It's like when you've got you know, a, a friend who's got severe bipolar and then they start taking their medication. It's like, wow. He, he was pretty mellow and, and even all day. This, this was great. Hope, hope this keeps up. And, and for the country's sake, I hope it does. And hopefully it's a sign he's, he's learned that uh, his, his erratic uh, thing was maybe exciting on the campaign trail, but people want a more dignified and, and temperate uh, approach from a president. Uh, of course, it was full of ridiculous, over-the-top, unkeepable promises useless platitudes, very unrealistic, uh, which in that regard makes him normal again, because that we get, we get a, we it's sure had a lot of that kind of stuff from yeah. the previous president and a lot of presidents uh, before that. Penn, do you think this one speech has the ability to reset what we've seen from the last 30 days? No, uh, because um, the, the, the headlines the, the rest of the week were all about as Patty pointed out, members of his cabinet lying and then the administration trying to inoculate themselves by getting ahead of it saying, oh, well, Jared Kushner and some other folks met with a bunch of Russians, too. We can't remember the specifics, but a bunch of people are meeting with Russians. Uh, the, I think we've got to be careful about putting too much weight on this address because to David's point, and if you read most of the reviews, nobody's praising what he said because he didn't say anything specific. Everybody's praising the fact he didn't go ballistic on TV. He normally does something crazy. He didn't this time. So they're getting a better feeling saying, well, maybe he can hold it together for four years. But you can't hold it together spending an hour and a half talking to the American people saying nothing. You know, sure, the Republicans are going to rally about a speech that says we want to improve the economy. We don't know how, but we want it better. We want to create more jobs. We don't know how, but we want it better. They're not going to replace all the coal mining jobs lost in West Virginia. And then the Affordable Care Act, I thought that was ridiculous because the Republicans now know they can't agree on how to repeal and replace it because they're getting too much feedback from independents and Republican constituents saying you can't take away this now that we know the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare are the same thing we don't care what you call it you can't just dismantle it so no I don't think it does a reset I think it simply highlights the magnitude of the issues this administration has got to face and they need to dig in and have some real concrete steps they're going to take to improve the country. Natasha, let's go to that same point. Is too much being made from the speech? I think so. You know, I, I, one of the things that I, I want to focus on um, is sort of the Colorado reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And Denver Business Journal did a great roundup this week of several Politico's reactions to the speech. And sort of midway through, you have Steve House, who is the uh, state chairman for the Colorado Republican Committee, and he said that there was a quote clear path forward, particularly relating to health care, um, some border security, and taxes. What was amazing to me was that if you looked up on the page and down on the page, there was no clear path. 
path. <laughs> he was the only one who really felt that there was a clear path. And, and that's where, you know, when we're talking about Affordable Care Act, when we're talking about border immigration, all of these issues, I don't think that this speech gave us that moment of clarity. I think it gave us a different look at Trump, which could be a start of something new, but it's way too early to tell whether that's the case. And, and regardless, that, that, that sense of, of, okay, now this is where we go just didn't happen. Following recent complaints that he had been unresponsive to his constituents, Senator Cory Gardner held a tele-town hall on Wednesday. The virtual gathering attracted 10,000 attendees who grilled the Republican lawmaker on issues ranging from President Trump's administration picks, marijuana regulation, and Obamacare during a 45-minute conference call. David, I saw a report on 9 News talking about comparing the amount of town halls, both real, in-person, and virtual, uh, and it really seemed that the really only outlier was Jared Polis, who has had a lot of them, but everybody else is kind of in the same ballpark. A teleconference from a U.S. senator, is this pretty normal? Well, no, it's an advanced thing in our new high-technology age, and I'm glad it's been invented uh, just in time because fascists are shutting down the normal town halls. You know, a town hall is supposed to be a thing where a, a congressperson, for example, can go and people, usually from the district, have a chance to ask questions and express their point of view. And of course, it's just more people are going to show up typically if they're unhappy about something that's going on in Washington than go to a town hall to say how much they like something going on in Washington. And, and that's fine, and, and those critical questions are important for legislators to be able to stay in touch with uh, the things that are most of interest to people who are worried about stuff going on. But instead of that, there's now been an organized mobs run by ex-Obama administration and other former congressional staffers adopting the tactics of the campus fascists to overwhelm these places, prevent other people from speaking, shout, shout speakers down, and in fact create such a violent mob thug atmosphere that the speaker isn't even physically safe. That's not democracy, that's fascism. So in response to the fascist, uh, Cory Gardner is doing the right thing by providing a forum where everybody can speak and the fascists can't take it over. And if they asked him a lot of tough questions, the real voters, great. Penn whether lawmakers are facing protests that are organized or unorganized, whether it's uh, organic frustration and anger or, uh, as David implies, organized, what is the right move for them to at least address this? I mean, you see teleconferences, you're seeing trying to do in-person stuff, you're seeing some lawmakers ignoring the whole thing. What's the right move? The right move is to honor the democratic tradition and show up in front of voters. It wasn't fascists who were part of the American Revolution. It was revolutionaries who spoke publicly and sometimes vociferously for a position. I think it's an excuse. Um, you know, I, you, you hear some Republicans say, well, gee, we've got these organized Obama mobs. No, they're not organized Obama mobs. They may just be your constituents who are angry over what they're seeing and how you're not responding to the situation. No one wants to give that point of view any credence. And I think it's ironic ironic for someone like Cory Gardner, who ran on saying, you know, Washington's too distant, it's too remote, it's not paying attention to you, 
I'm a grassroots guy, and oh, by the way, I'll talk to you over a teleconference and do a robocall and let you ask some machine questions, and maybe I'm there, maybe I'm not. That's sort of disingenuous, and I think it's insulting. Um, you know, having been in office before, sometimes the hardest thing to do is have a town hall meeting because you know your detractors and critics are going to be the most vocal. But part of what you sign up for in the job when you get elected is to look people in the eye and respond to that. And Cory Gardner and Democrats, too, they need to show up, look people in the eye and respond. And if they're fearful for their safety, I think it's legitimate to make sure arrangements for security are made. Natasha, a lot of these recent uh, protest reactions at town halls reminds me of 2010, where the the situation was flipped, but you had people thinking, well, these are orchestrated by uh, the Tea Party, by Republicans, and it wasn't just these uh, just angry folks. But obviously there were because there was, there was some genuine anger out there back then. I think there's some genuine anger now. So when we look at the lessons of 2010 and how they were dealt with, the town halls and opportunities to interact with constituents, what are some of those lessons that, should, that lawmakers should remember back here in 2017? Well, I think um, there are a number of things. One of the first things is constituents still have power. You don't have to look your politician in the face to be able to share your, your ideas and your concerns with them, as we saw in the Cory Gardner situation, where they just turned him into a flat Stanley cutout and <laughs> passed him around the room, essentially. That was an opportunity for people to say what their opinions were and what their views are. Um, I think that one of the mistakes that Corey may have made was overemphasizing this concept of paid protesters. I think it delegitimizes the people that are his constituents who do care and are showing up. And we saw that with some of the people who were responding to the, the call, who were saying specifically, I, 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 I'm a voter. I'm, I'm part of who you're representing. Um, something that I don't think has gotten a lot of play is the timing of the call. There were 10,000 people there, even though the, the start time had changed. It was 30 minutes earlier. You don't get that many people people at some Rockies games. <laughs> so they, they pushed this forward 30, 30 minutes and they were still able to get that many. That tells me that they were not dealing with just paid constituents. And I think finally, Cory Gardner um, made a point saying that he was committed to doing more of these calls. So whether they're in, por in person or calls or whatever, I think that that's something that Colorado should hold him accountable for, as we should do with any of our, uh, our politicians. Patty, are we going to see more teleconferences like the one we've seen from Senator Gardner? I, see, I hope we see more of those, and I hope we see more in-person town meetings. I disagreed with Joey Bunch about this last week. I completely agree with Penn. If you are running, if you're in public office, this is just what comes with the role. It comes with, when you're an editor, you're going to get yelled at. When you're the Denver police chief, you're going to get yelled at, but you still have to have the public forums. If you're Mayor Hancock and you've got an unpleasant situation, you still have to go out and meet the public. So Michael Bennett, who hadn't had a town hall meeting since 2014, we just wrote about that. Cory Gardner, you have to have them whether you want to or not. And Coloradans can be civil. Ken Buck had a perfectly fine town hall meeting where there was no huge controversy. Defense lawyers for Sir Mario Owens, was, who was convicted of killing Senator Rhonda Field's son and his fiancée in 2005, are accusing a juror who served in his two murder trials of misconduct. Attorneys claim that the juror lied on her questionnaire and failed to disclose her multiple relational ties to participants in the trial. Penn, we're 12, uh, 12 years past the crime, the day of the crime, and now this is coming up. It seems like a big deal. You're one of our two esteemed lawyers on the panel, so what do you make of the recent uh, allegations from the defense attorneys? Well, clearly, the, the allegations need to be investigated by the court. 
um, in in the district attorney's office to figure out um, if there was some impropriety. What what I find confusing about what's been reported is some reports indicate that some of the facts that have been raised were known to both defense counsel and the DA and the court previously have been brought to the court's attention before, and the court determined that there was no reason to declare a mistrial or declare a new trial. And it's, it's difficult to ascertain what's new information and what's just recycled or recharacterized in terms of the old information. But, you know, based on our criminal justice system, there is a process for evaluating whether this has impacted the defendant's right to get a fair trial. It's a heinous crime. It's awful. It's shocked people. But under our system, people are entitled to a trial of, of fair and impartial jurors, and it's appropriate to inquire to make sure that that's what happened in this case. Natasha, on social media, Senator Fields uh, put out a response saying that uh, she felt that, you know, quote, the Denver Post article is a distraction from the truth. And uh, clearly, she's the, the, the person who is going to be most affected by this trial being brought up again. Uh, do you think we're going to see more developments here based on what we're seeing? Well, I'm sure there's a famous defense attorney who has a quick quip about this, but the thing with death penalty cases is getting the conviction, which is actually very difficult in the state of Colorado. It's truly the easy part. It's the appeals process, which can last years and even decades, when that's what we're in right now. Um, I think uh, Fields understands that. She she made comments related to that, knowing that this was part of the process, and, and it seems like she's quite respectful of that. I think, though, um, what's disturbing, even though these are allegations, um, anyone who's getting a jury summons in the next few months, anyone who's served on a jury, anyone, uh, judges, prosecutors, attorneys, defendants, anyone involved in our legal system must understand how important a, a jury is, an impartial jury. And this is a moment for us to kind of consider that and really think through what those, those questionnaires involve. Patty, you and your writers have uh, looked at the history of some of the biggest cases in Colorado. Uh, from what we know so far about this one, do you think we're headed for another long haul of what's going, not knowing what's going to happen? Well, we're in the middle of that long haul because this, the murders were 12, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, Natasha's right. They did get a death penalty conviction, which is really hard in Colorado. But now you are on maybe a 20-year slog, maybe longer. That's how long it, it it, how much time passes. I mean, look at the Chuck E. Cheese case where we may never have the death um, sentence executed in that case. And in this case, they've been doing lots, they've been digging up lots of excuses for a retrial and different things. This is the most interesting one I've heard of yet. And obviously, as Penn says, they're going to have to investigate it because if true, this is amazing that a juror with that background made it all the way to the panel. David, you're our other esteemed lawyer on the panel. So as you look at this legally and you see a headline in the Denver Post, what should the public take away of what the process is from here? Well, if the juror is guilty of the misconduct that is, is alleged, then it, it's probably criminal punishment is the, for the juror is the appropriate thing to do. Uh, this guy, Mario Owens, who is not a sir you know, any more than I'm the, the Prince of Wales, uh, is... This doesn't affect his first first-degree homicide conviction. He's guilty of that. It's a second homicide conviction that is uh, is at issue, and then the the, death, the capital sentence uh, imposed after that. There is a huge presumption, almost irrebuttable in our criminal justice system, 
is you do not question a jury's verdict because you want it to have finality. And so there's a currently a U.S. Supreme Court case on this right now. But up, up till now, it's been no. Once the jury's decided things, you know, if, if the, you want to ask for a mistrial right then, go for it. But you don't come in a decade later uh, trying to upset a, a, a jury determination. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. And as always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. I am going to return to Washington, D.C., and Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who needs to spend a little more time checking over his calendar to remember who we actually met with, and also maybe at the same time checking some facts when he spoke to the attorneys general about drug use and about marijuana and how it's a gateway drug to just about every evil thing in the world, including Russia. He could have noted the facts are that opioid use, which he was talking about, is actually down in Colorado, where you have recreational marijuana legalized, unlike most of the rest of the country. David. In the early 70s, the Congress created a special committee, the Church Committee, to investigate what they thought was uh, former President Nixon's abuse of the CIA. And it was something of a partisan background to that, but they went the whole way and find out not only did they, was a lot more wrongdoing by Nixon uncovered, but President Lyndon Johnson and presidents before him had also been abusing the CIA. We need a similar committee to look into Russian influence in the Trump campaign in 2016 and Russian and Chinese influence going back at least 20 years to when the Chinese were giving illegal campaign contributions to the Bill Clinton administration. There are a lot of swamp creatures of both parties in this country uh, who have been on the take from the Russians and the Chinese. Penn. Ditto Patty's choice, Jeff Sessions, for a different reason. He's illustrating why lawyers get a bad rap. You've got the attorney general who, during his confirmation hearing, when specifically asked by um, Al Franken, did you have these conversations? He's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. No, of course not. Um, now he's saying, well, you know, I had meetings with Russians as a senator, but not as a Trump surrogate and not as a, please. It's too cute by half, and it's just beneath the dignity of the office. Natasha. Uh, on Friday morning, there was an arrest made in connection with some of the threats that have been made on Jewish facilities in recent months. Um, obviously, that's a moving target, and I, I wouldn't want to comment too much on that, but just I hope that that is the last that we really have to spend talking about threats on Jewish facilities in this country. That should be history. Here, here. Say something nice about somebody, the hardest part of the show, Patty. Easy this week. Come August, we will see the return of professional bicycling with Velorama, which is going to be in Colorado Springs, uh, Breckenridge, and Denver, but also with a big party with the Colorado Classic and Rhino, so it should be fun. David. The very small principles caucus in Congress, which actually does not automatically always go with whatever the most shrill point of view is from their party, uh, but will criticize people in their own party. And so uh, Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and Joe Manchin are doing good service uh, by not being partisan all day, every day. Penn. Well, it's been my disgrace in the past, and now I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, kudos to the city and to downtown Denver, whoever's responsible for the increased security presence on the 16th Street Mall. It's noticeable, and it's beginning to make a difference. Natasha. I'm going to do three this week, but very quickly. Dobie, the giraffe at the zoo, get well <laughs> soon. Secondly, the rapids are starting their season. Good luck to them. And third and finally, um, we're entering the, the month of photography, Denver, which has fantastic exhibits. You go to one, you're going to want to go to all the events. Well done. 
That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. We're kicking off our spring pledge drive this weekend, and we have a new way that you can show your support. Hashtag Donate is a new program we have that allows you to show your support for programs like this in a whole new way. Check it out on Facebook and Twitter and all of our social media accounts. As always, be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and Google Play and the show segments on our social media pages. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Thank you.